What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Neil, if it does turn out, you'll go down in history. What kind of thoughts do you have about that when the thought hits you? Uh, gosh, suppose that flight successful? We're planning on that flight being successful. Uh, I, I just meant how you feel about being a part of history. So we're planning on that flight being successful. That's the big dance number, or does that come later? Definitely later, Josh. Ryan Gosling there as Neil Armstrong in Damien Chazelle's First Man, which lands in theaters this weekend. It's Chazelle's first film since winning the Best Director Oscar for La La Land last year. That was just last year. Time has lost all meaning. Our review of First Man plus the Film Spotting Top 5 movie flights. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So between recording last week's show, our big 700th, and this week, our top five has changed. It was going to be movie astronauts. I know it sounded like I was deriding that, but I'm a big fan of a lot of astronaut movies. I was kind of looking forward to it, even if I was a little nervous, Josh, about the options. And we did ultimately realize that there actually weren't that many. If you don't subscribe to the Film Spotting newsletter, which you can do, now at filmspotting.net, you probably missed actually hearing how that whole process played out. Sam took an entire transcript of our Slack conversation. Yes, he did. So you see how the Top 5 Astronauts was born, how it died. A and slow then how, death. And then how a long, slow, protracted scenes death was born. And that was a good change. Flight scenes, we went from not enough options to maybe way too many options with yeah, flight scenes. That is absolutely the case. I'm looking forward to your list later in the show. We'll see how crazy you got with it because when it was thrown out by you on Twitter, we saw all the different routes we could go down, and it doesn't have to be manned aircraft like we see in First Man in so many other movies, but there's lots of flying on make-believe creatures Yeah, did you, that can be included. Did you give Falcor the Luck Dragon a lot of consideration? You have no idea I'm who so Falcor the Luck I'm Dragon so is. I'm so out of my depth right <laughs> yes, now. Yes, indeed. We're going to get to that in a little bit, along with Massacre Theater. But first, Damien Chazelle goes from a city of stars to a sky full of them, and he takes Ryan Gosling with him. Let's review First Man. Damn, that is a big mother. It'll go up like a half kiloton A-bomb if it blows. The vehicle's not safe. We need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. This isn't just another trip, Neil. You're not just going to work. Do you think you're coming back? There are risks, but we have every intention of coming back. Somebody got a Swiss Army knife. Swiss Army knife. Are you kidding me? Josh, we just came from an IMAX screening of Damien Chazelle's First Man. And because of that, we're just going to cut right to the chase and really get to the question. I can't wait to hear you weigh in on just a little bit of background. First, the movie covers... Really a seven to eight year span in Neil Armstrong's life from his time as an engineer and test pilot who was selected for NASA's Gemini and Apollo programs and ultimately becomes, spoiler, the first man to walk on the moon. When you think about Damien Chazelle's previous films, they're 
kind of loud movies. From his debut, the jazzy musical romance Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, which is filled with singing and dancing, to Whiplash, where jazz is again the milieu, and Miles Teller plays an aggressive drum student taught by an even more aggressive instructor to his last film, which, of course, features more singing and dancing and jazz, La La Land. There is no jazz in First Man. There's scarcely any music, and there's actually scarcely any talking, as Armstrong is a man of few words to begin with, who turns more inward after the loss of his young daughter, and whose job requires him to do a lot, but say almost nothing, even when he's strapped into a rocket tightly next to one or two other people who, like him, are experiencing something few people, and in some cases, no other people in history, have ever experienced. I'm curious how you think Chazelle acquits himself here with all that quiet. Well, I would say maybe it's noisy in different ways. Mm -hmm. One thing that struck me about all of the spaceflight sequences is how chaotic they were, visually mostly. A Mm -hmm. lot of shaky cam here. Yes. And almost to the point where some of the images take on an abstract feel to them, where things begin to blur together. And obviously this is putting us in the astronauts point of view, right. um, but it's very intense, uh, more so than most of the astronaut films I can think of, and noise is a big part of that. There's a roar that comes with this. The opening sequence where Armstrong is taking a test flight just outside of the Earth's atmosphere, what's most striking about that, and this ties to your point, is how we get that roar and that rush and the clatter. I mean, you feel like this thing's going to fall apart, mm-hmm. and then he breaks through And suddenly there's silence once he gets out of the atmosphere. Uh, That's a really striking moment and a very exciting sequence. And it's mirrored with the very final sequence of the landing on the moon Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of chaos until that landing, till the door opens and they step out. And we can talk about the other visual elements that come into play there too. But there's silence as well when we finally meet the expanse of the moon's surface. So yeah, that's a technique that I think is used effectively in First Man. Uh, He is working with Justin Hurwitz, again, the composer who has been involved in all of his films. And I would say, you know, the distinction that he adds here is sort of a, he's using a theremin in some cases. So we get this almost 60s cheesy space motif. It's very gentle. So it's just in the background. It's not like, you know, the sci-fi stuff we're probably thinking of when we hear the word theremin, but it's there. You sense it. I don't know how I feel about that yet. Uh, At other moments, the score is really heavy when they're approaching the moon and very momentous uh, feeling. And that is part of the audio chaos as well, in a way. So I'm still thinking my way through this score, especially because of the way music is so integral in all his other films. But I think you're right to point out that uh, there are distinct moments of silence that I did find very effective. And I think Gosling's performance as part of that works too. I mean, one of the things he can do well is stoicism, I feel like. He, He can withhold a lot while still letting us in enough. And in their vision of Neil Armstrong, that's crucial. And Mm -hmm. I think he does it well. I agree he does it well. One thing that did strike me about the score, and I think this ties into some other aspects of the film we may end up discussing, it's never triumphant, though. 
not in the way think about for me it's not i know you said it gets more momentous it gets louder it gets bigger especially as they're approaching the moon but it doesn't have that kind of apollo 13 at times or even the right stuff or yeah, some of these other space true. movies where it's about trying to really make you feel something as a viewer make you feel whether it's pride or be inspired i never felt like it was trying to push any of those emotions onto us and again i feel like that ultimately reflects the the hero at the core of this story and the person who Neil Armstrong is, at least according to this portrait. And putting it in that perspective, thinking about it in relation to other Chazelle films, you can see why he might be drawn to someone like Armstrong, because similar to Miles Teller's character in Whiplash and to Gosling again as Seb in La La Land, they're all kind of obsessive men who have a quest and who have some integrity and there is something that they are trying to attain or aspire to that is greater than themselves, that they have to push themselves to get to. But there is at least one key difference. And I think this gets back to this notion of quiet and saying versus doing. We always know what Seb wants. We know what he's after in La La Land. We know what Miles Teller's character is after in Whiplash, they're open books. They're people who are proclaiming through both their words and their actions exactly what they're after. And it's the complete opposite here. We have in Gosling's Armstrong a character who really is only about action and is almost physically unable to actually express himself to the outside world. Now, where it's similar to those films is I do feel like it's as much about movement and about precision and sound in some ways as those more musically inclined films, whether it's the camera twirling with these characters in space, the shakiness of it that we get in a lot of scenes putting us right there in the capsule or the cockpit with these men, and even the way we are watching those characters under that duress know what their moves are, know what the steps are. I do feel like there is some connection there, especially as we get into some of those sequences, like the extended moon sequence, where there isn't much that's being said at all, but there is a lot of grace in terms of the movement of the characters and of the space capsules themselves and the way he renders that. Well, Gosling's Armstrong would probably say he he doesn't have anything to explain or to to say because, as you're saying, he is a man of action. Everything yes. he needs to do, he'll do, and there's not much more to say about it. Um, and so that's that's key to the performance. I actually I actually wish there was a little more clarity and precision for the viewer in some of the space flight scenes. I think of something like Apollo 13, where which really puts that at the forefront. And some people might not appreciate how explanatory it is. But I, I do remember sitting through that and feeling like I understood every challenge they were up against. And in moments of crisis, I understood the problem and how they were trying to solve it. Um, I, I was a little bit more adrift during yeah. similar sequences here. And just to compare it to something like Whiplash, you know, I was never adrift in what they were trying to achieve when it came to those precise jazz performances, even though I know very little about jazz. For me, if you look at First Man in context of Chazelle's other films, I see them, I agree with, with all the comparisons uh, you're pointing out and making. I think that's definitely there. But I almost see them as four films but two sets. And obviously, it's easy to pair the two musicals um, because they are such a rare genre and they're of a piece. But for me, it's more 
about how closely Whiplash and First Man resemble each other in the central conflict here, which Mm -hmm. is all about the pursuit, in the case of Whiplash, perfection, musical perfection. And here, if you're not perfect, you're going to die. If this mission does not have every box checked Mm -hmm. precisely how it needs to be, that's how high the stakes are. And so the question becomes, what is worth pursuing or risking in the pursuit of that perfection. Miles Teller's character in Whiplash, he he loses family, he loses a, a girlfriend, all in pursuit of this drumming that he is after. And here it becomes something similar for Armstrong. And it's tied into, you mentioned at the beginning, the loss of their young daughter, mm-hmm. which comes in early in the film. And the movie depicts him as getting lost in his work to push that away, to not to have to confront that loss of his daughter and really grieve and really wrestle with it. Instead, he buries himself in his work so obsessively, the implication is that that was the only way he was going to become this guy to achieve this great thing. And I don't think the movie is making a judgment call on that. I think it's one of the best things about it is it's similarly conflicted like Whiplash about that pursuit of perfection because Whiplash ends with something where you're not sure. You suddenly say, maybe all those costs were worth it for this final performance. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was worth it. Maybe everything Armstrong gives up, and there are a lot of domestic scenes about the cost to his family here, uh, was worth it for him to be the guy who's the first on the moon. And I think the movie is conflicted about that, which I think is to its credit. One thing I will ask you, though, because here's something that I'm not so sure about. A lot of biopics need an answer to their character, one thing that will explain them. And often it is an early loss in life or trauma suffered in life. I don't know how I feel about Armstrong's daughter's death being the Rosetta Stone to who he is. And it's certainly how the movie presents it because we get many flashbacks or other moments where Karen, the daughter, comes back to him. And it's almost, for me, too much of the key. Totally understand this would be perhaps the most traumatizing and crucial moment in this guy's life. Of course. Um, But the way the movie holds it as the key to everything. Mm. Yeah, I didn't feel that as much at all. I got the sense actually, and I'd really have to watch it again to be able to completely support this. But I got the sense that actually he probably wasn't too different of a man before that loss. I don't think there was a fundamental shift in him. I think this is always kind of who he was. And actually, at one point, Claire Foy, who plays his wife here, Jan, she says she married him because he was so different, but he seemed so stable, which to me suggests he was just really boring. And he probably wasn't very extroverted. He probably wasn't outward in a lot of what he ever said or expressed to the world. And I didn't feel like the movie overdid it with those references to the daughter, Karen, and how it was used. I think that it worked for me, Josh, because I did see the movie as a film that ultimately didn't want to use that as an answer. I don't feel like I have any answers about who Neil Armstrong is. I love that complexity. I love that ambivalence. I love that lack of clarity with this character. And I think that it is a movie that is certainly about grief and really about the extent to which some of us are willing to go to not confront it, even if it means taking on challenges like the one he takes on, because that's the the difference or we can get into the nuances of it. But you're dead on with your comparison to Whiplash. 
and the cost and the way Chazelle explores it, I still come back to the fact that Whiplash's main character is someone who is so eager to proclaim his greatness to the world and so eager to explain to the world why greatness even matters, why we need to aspire to achieve amazing things, to reach new heights, to overcome obstacles and expand our horizons. And you have someone, Neil Armstrong, who everyone else around him will say all of those things. And for him, it simply seems something that he is wired to do, that he is compelled to do, that I don't think he can even articulate, and he certainly never tries. Sure. Yeah, they're very different as characters, that's for sure. Just remember, though, you know, that that climactic moon sequence, how integral flashbacks to his daughter I agree. are in mm-hmm. that, and, and the final gesture as well. I mean, you could say that, that that sequence is as much about the loss of his daughter as it is about stepping onto the moon. Sure. So, I just so don't I know do that think any answer was attained in those moments. Well, I think that he's a different person. No, I, I'm not saying that's that's what it's doing, but I think it is trying to unlock why he is the man he is, why he is so withdrawn, why he becomes so emotionally distant from his wife and his two other children. And again, to tie it back to Whiplash, why he was so obsessive about making these missions work, asking the question, which is a good question, is did it require that sacrifice of working through trauma with his family in order to have the focus to be that guy who goes to the moon? I mm-hmm. think that's a really difficult and interesting question. Yeah. I just don't know if the movie leans on that as, again, like a Rosetta Stone a bit too much. I think that's a fair question, though. I think I would have been bothered by it if I felt like it was really exploiting it. And if I felt like as is the case, you're right, with so many biopics that it wanted to use that as that key as opposed to being genuinely interested in exploring the grief and its consequences. You touched on how you were a little bit adrift at times, and even though you saw a movie like Whiplash and didn't know much about jazz, you were always locked in to what the objectives were. It did such a good job of explaining it. I agree. And Apollo 13 is a very different kind of movie, and I think that it's a very good movie, and I don't think one movie necessarily does it better or worse, but I love that we get something very different here where I think back to those scenes in Apollo 13 in comparison to just walking out of this movie, and all I can think about is how claustrophobic this film is compared to a movie like Apollo 13, where we spend such a good chunk of that film in a similarly sized capsule, and yet the way it's shot, you feel like it's so much more spacious just because Ron Howard, I think, is being very careful and deliberate about making sure you understand where they are at all times and why they're doing the things they're doing. And I feel like it is a reflection of the movie as a whole. It's so insular and it's so intimate that he isn't as interested. And it works for me in trying to bring you as an outsider in because outsiders can't know what's going on in this world and will never know. And the movie does, I think, keep us at a distance then. And that way, to me, I really like that choice. And I was so happy about the fact that we were about, I think, three quarters of the way into the movie. And I couldn't believe that Giselle had managed to keep it so insular that even though we're in one of the most tumultuous decades in the history of America, the outside world doesn't encroach at all. It's about the neighborhood they live in, where they hang out with each other. They hang out with each other on the base. The wives spend time with each other. The kids spend time with each other. All they talk about is planes and going up in space. It's always about this world 
that's all it can be for these characters. They can't really have those outside distractions. And I could see how in their own little universe that everything else that's happening in America kind of fades away for these obsessive people. And I loved that. And so then when we turn the clock and we see that it's 1968, I was waiting for the soundtrack to kick in. I was waiting for some of those moments, was really hoping Chazelle would be restrained. And for the most part, he was. We get a little bit of commentary on TV, which you expect about protests and some of that. But then we do get a moment where the outside world directly encroaches And again, I thought he had defied cliche at so many turns throughout this movie. And then when we finally do get some sense of the struggles of other people in this world outside of this little bubble of these astronauts and their families, we get a moment that feels to me, frankly, like a little bit of a miscalculation because it came off almost more as just lip service than anything. It's like, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that there was this tumult in 1968 and that there is this struggle and there is this world going on outside the bubble where we get this recreation of Whitey's on the moon, where yeah. we see African-Americans who are protesting the racial injustice in our country. And this is all going on while... NASA is spending all of our money going to the moon. How did you feel about that moment coming into the film? Did it feel like it was a departure that didn't really fit? Yeah. So it's Leon Bridges, actually, as Gil Scott Heron performing Whitey on the moon. And I, you know, it's a part from what the rest of the picture was doing. I didn't particularly mind it. I kind of liked the context. I was okay with breaking that bubble. And I also liked how it undercut a little bit the mythologizing that a lot of the space history movies will do. Mm-hmm. Though something like The Right Stuff punctures that bubble on occasion too. I guess it would have been maybe better if there had been more of that, you know, yes. and not just this one or nod. none of it. Right. Yeah, more just or none that perhaps in. Is, is a good way to say it because um, it, it's definitely a departure for the rest of the film. So you're talking about the claustrophobia and the intensity. You know, this is something that going back to Guy and Madeline, Chazelle uh, really favors and probably, you know, hasn't gone back to it since until now in First Man, these tight close-ups on people's faces. Yes. And very um, tight. It, and and that is a perfect match for the environment of mm-hmm. these capsules. And I should make a distinction between the sequences that I know are meant to disorient us and to give us that sense of, of being outsiders. But even just domestic scenes. And uh, yeah, he uses the close-ups in domestic scenes, but I'm talking more about the space flight ones now. Uh, I'm making a distinction between those where I understand we're supposed to be of at a loss and then somewhere there are references to things they're trying to do. There are a lot of insert shots of buttons and switches and alarms. And in some cases, it's good to be overwhelmed by those and to get a sense of, oh my gosh, these guys know what all this is. That's for me what it's doing. Right. But I think there are other sequences where we are supposed to be a bit more attuned to the exact challenge facing us that I got a little bit lost. But again, that opening sequence, I think is just perfection. When I, I don't know if I've seen another film that has captured the puncturing of the atmosphere just that way. And then the challenge he faces of trying to get back in. I think they they say at one point, you're bouncing off the atmosphere. Yeah, you're bouncing. It's just something like that that gives me some sense. That made me panic. I've never thought about being in space where it feels like you're adrift at sea on a current and you might not be able to get back. Yeah. And suddenly it came. It became all about how is he going to repuncture to get back to Earth? I mean, that 
that whole just opening brilliant. sequence, I would, the I would hold that up against incredible. The, the climactic sequence, which we should spend a few minutes on. Yeah, no, I would as well. I think it's stunning. And you do as a viewer, and maybe this is where IMAX help, but because of the point of view aspect to it, because of the very tight close-ups and the way that puncturing moment is depicted, you feel it as a viewer. Like, you viscerally feel yeah. as if you are there and you are trapped, and yet you know how absurd that is because you're how many hundreds of thousands of feet above the ground, and yet you do feel trapped. You feel like you are maybe about to hit that barrier or crash right through it and never come back. And I think that's a pretty great trick that they pull off. I did want to go back a little bit to that lack of politics, the apolitical nature of this film, if you will. I think it's a real strength of the film, ultimately. I think that, as I said, its ambivalent portrait of Armstrong is a strength. I don't think right now, as viewers, I'm not looking to films like this to further mythologize heroes. I don't need those types of heroes. I need real heroes. I need people who are just a little bit smarter and a little bit braver, and they are imperfect people of action. And that's what we get here. I think that's one of my favorite aspects of the film. And I think we might get to the end a little bit. A lot of people who have followed this film are probably vaguely aware of the alleged flag controversy, which I didn't even intend to bring up. And the only reason I am now is because it ties to this point I'm making about the movie's lack of point of view as far as making a blatant political statement and also how I think it fits in so nicely with the other aspects of the film in terms of the way Armstrong is portrayed. It doesn't make the planting of the flag itself into a production. It doesn't turn that into a patriotic or mythological statement because this is a movie about a man who, at least according to this portrait, again, that we get, didn't seem to have a grandstanding bone in his body. He wasn't about those kind of statements or those kind of proclamations. I think the movie matches that. And we kind of touched on this, but the most justification it offers as far as why he is so committed to this, why anyone should be committed to space travel, is the perspective that it offers, that it gives us a new perspective. That's all this movie really suggests. It doesn't try to further pump up who these men were or what they did. It lets us make those judgments for ourselves. Even why Armstrong himself gets picked. So many other films, I said it defied cliches. I think so many other movies would have pointed us to those moments in a lot of the different training sequences or other encounters where we really would have had it just beaten into us why Armstrong was special. And I spent most of the movie actually asking myself, why? Why him? Why is he the one who keeps getting these missions? Why is he the one who ultimately is chosen to be the first man? I love that the movie makes us think about that for ourselves as opposed to giving us those answers. Well, and and part of the answer that I think we can surmise is a really difficult one. I mean, it shows that he's dedicated, he's intelligent, um, he has the right mindset, Mm -hmm. he has the obsession as we talked about. But how about the fact that he's a survivor? Mm -hmm. How many people have died before him so that he's the next guy in line to a degree. And I, I think this film is is also very honest about that. And it plays into the – there's a scene where someone asks, at what cost? You know, And th- this goes back to the idea of pursuing something, going after something obsessively no matter the cost. So I think that's one mm-hmm. answer right there. You know, the flag thing, um, I mean that goes back to my uh, point about the movie really – 
centering a lot of his persona in the loss of his daughter. I don't think that I think the decision to not focus on the flag is because they had other things in mind that they wanted that sequence to be about. 100 percent. Much more personal, intimate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. I love some of the repetition here, some that I picked up on, and there's probably a lot more that I didn't. But the way Chazelle will reinforce certain ideas and certain sounds even. Did you notice how often we hear slamming doors in this movie? Oh, yeah. Right? The way that every time they are locked into one of those cabins and their life is at stake and the way that is affecting their domestic life, every time that door shuts— it's slammed hard. And then we get moments, not just the one, though we do get a sequence where Armstrong is on the phone and he's angry and he keeps slamming those doors so hard. But there are other cases, Josh, where we just hear in that house, even though there's not much talking going on, not a lot of outward anger being displayed, you do nevertheless hear those doors closing quite a bit. I think that sound was meant to mimic the sound of those doors. It certainly seemed that way to me. Even the way we get something very subtle, I love the efficiency in the storytelling where we make those transitions in time like when we do, and this is all at the beginning of the film, so we're not spoiling anything, but when we go from the very beginning of the film, real quick too, talking about how thrilling that opening sequence is, were there credits to this movie at all? I feel like I don't remember them. Either I was just so immersed in it or they decided at some point to just launch us literally right into that capsule with him and we don't get them. Boy, I don't, I don't feel remember like we got them it. either. I could have missed it, but I certainly wasn't thinking about them or paying attention to them. But how we go from that and the suggestions that the daughter might be close to dying to then just that shot of Claire Foy, who's very good here, standing above the casket as it's going down into the ground and then just a couple scenes later we get the interaction as he's gone back to work to take his mind off of this and he's being grounded i don't think i know that's a an actual flight term that's used for pilots but i don't think that it's an accident that it follows that moment of her body going into the ground and even after another tragedy where we're definitely thinking about fire and it's dangerous capabilities and then we see a scene or two later we see Claire Foy lighting up a cigarette and we get that close-up of that cigarette and the way it burns so he's just constantly doing little things like that that I think do add to that overall kind of sensory experience that this film is Claire Foy is really good as Janet Armstrong and the movie gives her you know maybe 30 percent more of the scenes than some of the other films we've been Apollo talking about that the women get back at home. I think it uh, makes a point of trying to interweave the two, the domestic scenes yes. and the flight scenes more intimately. Um, could have almost used more of those, yeah. actually, yeah. Um, because she's so good. She's She's got to have the quickest eyes. In movies. And, and maybe the biggest. They're always moving. I <laughs> in mean, that, IMAX. That makes her, you know, uh, very capable at fretting. She just, she does fretting so well, which is not a backhanded compliment. I mean, that's crucial to to this part. And yeah, she's, she's just really strong. So IMAX, um, if you see this in IMAX, that final sequence where they do exit and step out onto the moon, just the entrance into IMAX is maybe better than actually what we see in IMAX, where the camera leaves the craft and suddenly the screen just kind of explodes. Mm-hmm. Again, as we mentioned at the top, it goes quiet. And the there's a clarity to it because there's a different film stock being employed. Yeah. Um, and you just take in the endlessness of the lunar landscape um, that also has this bizarre, eerie 
simplicity. Yes. You know, to come so far and achieve something and accomplish something and you step out onto essentially endless dust and rocks. Yeah, nothing And boulders. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely immense in IMAX. And, and I'm glad the decision expense was taken to achieve this. Certainly, if you have the chance to see it in IMAX, we recommend it. It sounds like we recommend trying to see First Man in any format. First Man is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Adam and I are going to have to fight over who gets to play one of my childhood movie heroes next in Massacre Theater. Then the Film Spotting Top 5 is cleared for takeoff movie flights. Stay with us. I know this world ain't never fair. I know there's trouble everywhere. But I see your body lying there. Nothing to die to fear And not as long as I'm standing here My beautiful boy My beautiful boy I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Woefully overrated. This influential horror film from director John Carpenter can be appreciated as a fountainhead at best. Now, who could have written that about 1978's Halloween? Was it Pauline Kael? Was it... Andrew Saris, close. Maybe, maybe You're close. Vincent Canby, <laughs> 56 reviews of Halloween on Rotten Tomatoes. I wish I could say that you, Josh Larson, were in yes. good company, but we'll just say for now it ain't you and Roger Ebert. So that's still out there. That's on the internet, I guess. huh? I thought, maybe by now, I thought maybe by now you would have made a little edit. <laughs> well, we'll have to see. Perhaps that's what next week's episode is for. I'm not going to say now. I will only say that I have revisited Halloween. And given it much more careful, close consideration, we'll see if I offer a mea culpa or if I dig in my heels next week. Okay. I am excited. I'm excited to revisit the movie myself, which I have not done at this point. We will have a Sacred Cow review of Carpenter's Halloween on its 40th anniversary, and we'll share some thoughts on the new sequel, which I think we're going to end up seeing right before we come in yeah, it's looking to tape like that. those conversations. It's David Gordon Green's Halloween is it a sequel? Is it just a remake set 40 years in the future? We'll find out. Jamie Lee Curtis does return, we know that, to the franchise for the sixth time. It says the sixth time. Now, Josh, is that a typo? I mean, is that a typo? There haven't been six Halloween movies, have there? There probably have. No, I don't think she's been in that many. This, My guess is this means... There have been six. Oh, this is her first you know, return since. <laughs> this is yeah. where Josh. Sometimes you have to read ahead on the bullet points. Yeah, there's... our our very funny producer Sam Van Halgren prepares for us. It says it's the first time since 2002's Halloween Resurrection. There, that's a joke, right? That's, there you go. That's like a riff on Alien. 
I'm getting it now. There's no way there was Halloween Resurrection, right? I'm going to look. I have no <laughs> I have no sense of this franchise. I did see the Rob Zombie one. That's all I can tell you. Okay. All right. I'm going to look that up while you You proceed. do that. If you have thoughts on Halloween and any of its incarnations, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or leave a voicemail. The number is 312-264-0744. Halloween Resurrection came out in 2002. Oh, it's a real movie. And it did indeed star Jamie Lee Curtis. Okay, so Sam wasn't joking. <laughs> no, That's he was, real. He was providing valuable information. What's the alien movie that had an R word in it? Yeah, there's Alien Resurrection, isn't there? And ha- Halloween Resurrection? Yeah, and doesn't Alien versus... Isn't Alien versus Michael Myers out there somewhere? Let's move on at this point. Last week, it was our 700th episode. Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born was the film we reviewed, and we did our top five movie duets. Tying in with that review, Michael Phillips joined us and buried somewhere in that two-and-a-half-hour show. And yes, it was two-and-a-half hours, not by design. It just worked out that way. If you listen to the full podcast version, you did get this poll question, which horror remake are you most excited to see? So both horror remakes or whatever you want to call them. One is definitely a remake. That's Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. And then we're putting that up against David Gordon Green's Halloween. Just in time for Halloween, these 70s films are coming back to the big screen in these new forms. We wanted to know which one you were most excited to see. Somehow, Josh, you voted for Halloween. That's true. I voted Suspirio right now. The majority of the audience voting in my favor, or they're voting in Suspirio's favor, I should say. We will share the results next week on the show. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, we always like to feature some of those in the show. Please let us know where you are listening from. We do not have passes to give away. To Halloween or Suspiria, at least just yet. But if you go to filmspotting.net and click on events, you will often find giveaways there. And we do have admit two passes to an advanced screening of Can You Ever Forgive Me? It's the latest from Marielle Heller, a Golden Brick nominee for the very good film Diary of a Teenage Girl. This stars Melissa McCarthy as real-life celebrity biographer Lee Israel. So that's Monday, October 22nd here in Chicago if you are in the area and want to see that movie for free and see it before it comes out. I just came from this, and it's a possibility that we'll review it on the show. So I'm not going to say too much except go ahead and track down these passes. You'll be happy you did, I think. You can do that at filmspotting.net slash events. And we mentioned it off the top of the show, but we did get our second newsletter out. And if you enjoyed that content, maybe tell a friend. If you aren't enjoying that content yet, go to filmspotting.net. There is a sign-up form there on the main page. It also might be a little bit easier to find at filmspotting.net slash episodes. But yes, you can see the actual unedited life and death of the top five. (laughs) You can burrow into the Film Spotting Slack and see what that conversation is like sometimes. So we've put out two. Yes. I'm going to say if we get to five, this is a real deal. <laughs> this is <laughs> Then it's legit. This is a thing. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right, time now for Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Lionel Pritchard and the Wolf and your brothers are back. It's time for an ass whooping. This is not an intelligent way to approach this. Lee is a friend of mine. This is his son. Yeah, we'll be doing me a favor. All right, listen. We both go outside, move around the house in opposite directions. We act crazy, insane with anger, make them crap in their pants, force them around till we meet up on the other side. Explain that crazy. You know, curse and stuff. Want me to curse? 
You don't mean it. It's just for show. What? It won't be convincing. It doesn't sound natural when I curse. Just make noises, then. Explain noises. Are you gonna do this or what? No, I'm not. All right, you want to be stealing something in the house next time? On the count of three. One, two, three. Insane with anger. That's Mel Gibson, who I, I bet he can get more insane with anger in real life than he is in that scene. Alongside Joaquin Phoenix in 2002, Signs, it was written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. That Massacre was inspired by our review of Jacques Odiard's The Sisters Brothers, which stars Phoenix. Sam had a little bit more rationale for picking the scene from Signs. He said Not Phoenix much. plays a brother. Who has a sister? Does he? Is there a sister in Signs? It's been so long. I haven't seen it since 2002. I feel like there might be a younger Yeah, that's it, right? It's girl. a younger sister? I have, I'm having faint memory of that. <laughs> so Let's maybe see. Sam's rationale Let's, was completely off base. That could very well be many other connections, though, I'm sure. We just waited for the <laughs> listeners to provide them. You know, usually that's the case. For this one, for whatever reason, listeners didn't get too far off the grid. Paul Castle in Seattle wrote, and I admit it took me a second to figure this one out, but the faintest growl in Josh's performance just screamed early 2000s Mel Gibson. I made a few connections. The first and most obvious is Joaquin Phoenix, but the episode also included a sacred cow review of Lost in Translation, which, like signs, is about people ostensibly trapped inside a building surrounded by creatures who speak an alien language. The hotel and farmhouse, respectively, provide a sanctuary where where the real drama concerning love, identity, faith, and purpose can transpire. Both films feature an enigmatic phrase in the final act. However, only one film succeeds in subtlety. Hats off to Sofia Coppola. There you go. Paul did a little more work. Jeremiah Murphy from Charlton, Massachusetts, said the connection I see right away with this week's show is the always great Joaquin Phoenix, who is in both Signs and the Sisters Brothers. But another connection with your review of Lost in Translation, it's Scarlett Johansson's voice that stars with Phoenix in Spike Jones's Her. And Jones, Coppola's ex-husband, has always been thought to be the inspiration for the Giovanni Ribisi character in Lost in Translation. Indeed, that celebrity photographer character, basically, a lot of people believe is really closely patterned on Spike Jones beyond what... Coppola herself has said about how autobiographical it is. Tyler in Fort Collins, Colorado says, I see signs catch a lot of grief nowadays, but it was my gateway drug into film appreciation and will always hold a special place in my heart. With every rewatch, I'm fully ready to become dismissive of the tidy twist, but my love for it is only ever reinforced. In 2002, I was 11. I didn't realize how fun and scary such a slow burn could be. And the chills of moments like Joaquin pacing in the lawn trying to get a look at the female Scandinavian Olympian on the roof or the scene with the baby monitor are as frightening as ever. For the record, Adam, I think Helen Mirren's tutelage has already paid dividends on this one. Your Joaquin Phoenix was pretty good. Josh's Mel Gibson, on the other hand... Hey, you did get some praise. You got a little bit of praise in there. It certainly wasn't mostly praise for me, Josh. Uh, I would take offense, Tyler, except I, too, love signs. So we're all right. Yeah, I remember liking signs when I saw it in the theater. But, yeah, I have not seen it since the film spotting hat semi brimming. Let's say, Josh, you will reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Melissa Prusi from St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Now, I'm probably going to get myself into trouble here, but isn't St. Louis Park where... A Serious Man takes place. Coen Brothers territory up there in Minnesota. I I can't confirm or deny. Okay, well, while I talk here a little bit more, it's yet another thing for you to Google. Congratulations, (laughs) Melissa. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Filmspotting t-shirt. Go 
That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. Quickly, yes, Melissa Prusi does live in the town that was the setting for the Coen Brothers, A Serious Man. I St. got Louis one Park, right. Minnesota. Good I job. Got one right. Very well done. So I have a chance here to play, really. <laughs> yeah. I, I would have loved to have played this part when I was maybe 10. Right. But or now it's the small part. Or I could have the really juicy part. That's it. So See, I don't usually know. give you the juicy I don't know ones. which way to go here. It's your call. I mean, I'm going to fail either way. <laughs> so I'm going to leave it up to you, Josh. Um, I kind of see your variation on my childhood hero. Okay. Well, I just I'm watched curi- this scene I'm for the first time. I'm curious about that. I, I don't know. I got to think about here, going back to Helen Mirren in the master class mm-hmm. that I've been studying so dutifully. Yeah. I got to think about what, what... was that advice again? About just walking well, naturally to the chair. Just yeah. think about the chair. Just think about okay. walking to the chair. What's here, your I've got advice for what you. What do you have to do? I just, just got to walk to the chair. What is it here? Just think about the jumpsuit. That's that's not an action, Josh. That's not an action. That doesn't help me. So I'm going to have to come up with something else. Dustin Hoffman style. I need to let's inhabit go. this character. All right, let's go. You're going to start it off then. Yeah. And I'm going to give you the action. And action. You see, my dear man, we're well able to protect against all enemies. Allow me to introduce you to the airlock chamber. Observe your route from this world to the next. And you, Dr. Clevermind, your desire to be America's first woman in space will shortly be fulfilled. Leaving you on your flying stud farm, conceiving your new master race. If you like, yes. And of course, anyone not measuring up to your standards of physical perfection will be exterminated. Certainly. And And scene. scene. I don't think he was quite that fey. My British voice is effeminate. (laughs) This this has been long established, Josh. I don't know how to do it any other way. All right. Maybe it's because I've been watching too much Helen Mirren. Could be. That actually might be it. (laughs) So we took some liberties with the names Mm -hmm. there, as you might imagine. That would make it just way too easy. There is a tie-in between this scene and some element of the show. It's probably already been determined, but... Have the voices, have the characters been determined? We want to know if you can recognize the movie we just massacred. Email its title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 21st. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a few weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. All right, I don't know if there will be any flying stud farms on our top five lists, Adam. I hope not. Our favorite movie flight scenes are next. Stay with us. I rode all night Like the fire my words could burn a hole up to heaven I don't ride all night burning holes up to heaven no more Clean. I don't stand out in the rain, have my eyes washed clean no more.
It's thank you time, and it's been a little while since we have shared some thank yous with our audience, everyone who has been so generous as to donate some of their hard-earned dollars our way in support of the show, whether it's through a PayPal subscription or a one-time donation. Some people, they like to send us things in the mail. They send us letters. They send us checks. It's all good. We'll take whatever you are so graciously willing to share. And we have some names we're going to highlight in some comments this week, including... New donor, James A., parts unknown, unfortunately. Nico in Vienna, Austria. He says, greetings, dear film spotting team. Thank you very much for your great work. Keep it up. Thank you, Nico. Listening all the way from Vienna. And we also got a donation from Michael J. Simonelli. Please tell me you are all planning to do a review of the new Nick Cage movie, Mandy. I was blown away and would love to hear what you all have to say about it. After years of on and off listening, I've made sure to thank you with a donation. Thank you, Michael. What say you, Josh, about Mandy? I would like to see it. I've heard good things, but man, it's getting to be that busy time of year. So we'll see if we can fit it in. We appreciate you trying to bribe us into talking about Mandy. That might help. We're going to let you down, at least for another month or two. But it's one we do sincerely both hope to get to. We got a Silver Club donation in the mail from Jim Bernstein. He's in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a longtime listener and actually a former colleague of mine. Great guy. And he sent us this note. Sincerest apologies for the lengthy gap between my last donation, it was 2014, and this one. Just as before, it took an odd coincidence, actually two, to impel my action this time. Just yesterday, I watched Minding the Gap and thought it would be a perfect nominee for the Golden Brick. Then this morning, I downloaded and listened to episode 695 and your insightful comments on this gem of a documentary. Perhaps a stranger coincidence, and one that should have made me act a few weeks ago, was listening to episode 689 when Adam interviewed Andrew Sherburn of Film Scene in Iowa City about the documentary Saving Brent. My wife and I are film scene members and have recently seen 8th grade and three identical strangers there. But that's not all. I was listening to episode 689 in Iowa City, no more than three blocks from film scene, after a 60-mile bike ride from, and Josh, I'm going to out myself as either a great Iowan or a terrible Iowan. Okay, go for it. Because it appears as Sigourney, Iowa, like Sigourney Weaver, Mm -hmm. but I swear it's really pronounced Sigourney. I think that's how Iowans say it. I should know. I've been one most of my life. Man, that could be embarrassing. As part of the quintessential Iowa event, Ragbri, and that night film scene had an outdoor showing of the quintessential Iowa movie, Field of Dreams. Talk about your tie-ins. He thanks us both for sharing our passion and expertise. We'll take it, Jim. Thank you, Jim. We will take it. Thanks so much for the kind letter and the donation. We also have a new $5 a month donor. He's John Kruger in Cambridge, Mass. Finally got around to donating, and it's of the well-deserved monthly type. I've been a long-time listener, and it's way past time to give back to the podcast I most look forward to every week. This is somewhat prompted by David Chen's words of wisdom, somewhat in appreciation for the excellent interview with Ethan Hawke, gave me the courage to rewatch for me an emotionally fraught Before Midnight, a lowly four-star movie next to Before Sunrise, four and a half stars, and Before Sunset, five stars. Just to share, my top five movies in alphabetical order, Before Sunset, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Groundhog Day, In the Mood for Love, The Royal Tenenbaums. Apparently, I'm a romantic. Not bad. But mostly because one of the things I appreciate most about you guys is your engagement with the film spotting community, and I'd like to be a part of it. Having listened since the waning era of Maddie 
study and in the process of going through all of the early Cinecast material, I want to make an observation. As you close in on 700 episodes, I recognize what seems to be an increasing apprehension on a weekly basis as to how to come up with original top fives. Given the number of episodes you have done, it is understandable. My fear is you could use this as an excuse to retire the show. My two cents. While top fives are a hallmark of your show, I think the community simply loves to hear you talk about films. So if this means more reviews of current movies, more blind spotting episodes, more sacred cows, more marathons, and no more weekly top fives, listeners will still be with you guys. Your intelligent, moving, funny, and insightful conversation about film constantly renews my, and from the feedback I hear, a whole community's love of movies. This is just to say you guys always do good work, and please keep it up. Well, thanks for the kind words, John. And yeah, I would say we've probably expressed that concern when we try to come up with ideas. But I'd also say that we've had a good couple of top five subjects recently. I think duets was a blast. Mm -hmm. And as we'll see soon, movie flights was a lot of fun, too. So I think we just got to work a little harder maybe to hit on those good ideas. That's it. And John, we should probably point out that that's actually just kind of a go-to joke for us to lament how many top fives we've done and how many we expect to do and how we are surely going to run out of them at some point. I mean, that that could happen, I suppose. But at this point, I don't anticipate it being the thing that would ever derail film spotting. And we've been talking about, to John's point, that as we get into... October, November, December, and we have so many movies to see, we might have to cut back a little bit on top fives and go ahead and focus on multiple reviews just to force ourselves to see those movies, to make sure we have an opportunity to see all those movies as opposed to devoting the time to the top fives that we usually do. So, John, thank you so much for the note and the support of the show. You are indeed a full-blown member of the film spotting community now, and we have one more member of that community we would like to thank. He's a gold-level donor, Tom Clark in San Jose. Hey, guys, congrats on 700 episodes. I've been listening since the beginning, and Film Spotting is still the only podcast I listen to regularly. Keep up the good work, and thanks for making my Silicon Valley commute a little less painful. So speaking of interacting with listeners, I am again going to either make myself look very good here or embarrass the hell out of myself, but I'm positive that Tom Clark and I have hung out. We've had dinner. I'm positive. Can you provide any more details? I've met so many film spotting listeners over the years that it would be easy to confuse Tom for someone else, even though he really has been listening since the very early days of the show. But yeah, we hung out. I was in San Jose once. He was a very early listener to the show, but I think it was like 10 years ago. Okay. But I remember meeting him. And unless he tells me otherwise, we've broken bread together. I'm going to take your word for it. It's too bumpy. It is top five time, tying in with our review of First Man. We are sharing our top five flight scenes, though I think we've actually amended that slightly. We're just calling it movie flights. E.T., that's a flight scene. There's no jet. There's no planes there. But, of course, one of the most memorable flight scenes in movie history. And, of course, E.T. is in the film spotting pantheon. So it's ineligible for top five consideration. Josh, there are actually a lot of movies with some good candidates for this list that we had to exclude. Sure, in the Pantheon as well as Apocalypse Now. Think of the Ride of the Valkyries sequence. How about The Big Lebowski on Twitter? Jeff Kane suggested the dream sequence there. Midnight Run. 
These the, things go the, down, Charles Grodin says. The, the curious entry in the Pantheon does have a scene that could be considered a flying scene. Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, both of those, Wizard of Oz, a flying house and flying monkeys. That's true. You, you could see this could have gone many, many different directions. Yes, and we're going to find out what directions we went in here as we get to our list. Probably don't need a lot of setup or criteria, Josh. Anything special as you approach yours? Just that this may come as a disappointment as well to a lot of listeners because they went wild with this topic. I'm sticking to aviation scenes. Yeah, I, I mean, mean too. Well, there were just – it's a closer tie into First Man, of course. But also there were just so many ways to go if you did include fantasy uh, or space travel or that sort of thing. So I thought of it – maybe this doesn't make sense to most people, but as the difference between flight – and flying, I, I in my mind, flying is more like, you know, the house in Up, one person suggested, or that giant dog beast in The NeverEnding Story. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to focus more on flight. I also set aside, just to limit things and narrow them for me, crashes specifically. That could okay. almost be its own list. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. And I think maybe I have one that then you might have excluded, though, the majority of the scene. It's not about the crash at sure. all. And what's okay. great about it is not the crash. So. Okay. There you go. Basically, for me, uh, in keeping with First Man, I settled on scenes that capture this this crazy miracle of aviation. I mean, whenever I fly, and I have to do it a couple times a year, I don't hate it. I don't love it. But I do think every time that this should not be possible. This no. is kind of nuts I know. what I we're doing like here. Every time I go, I'm just on a bus in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's wrong. Exactly. So I wanted – to focus on scenes that captured the miracle of being able to do that, somewhat captured the sense of that. Okay. All right. So at number five, I know I'm raising my daughter well because when I told her that this was the subject of our top five, the first thing she said was, flying down to Rio. (laughs) This is the first Fred Astaire-Ginger Rogers pairing from 1933. And in fact, they're not even the leads here. They do, of course, end up stealing the show as these members of a big band that's performing in Rio de Janeiro. So Fred and Ginger have a couple of good numbers in the movie, um, but they're not a big part of this scene I'm choosing for this list, which is the grand finale that involves planes flying over the skies of Rio with chorus girls riding on the wings. So imagine 42nd Street combined with an air show. Now, this starts out fairly preposterous. There are kick lines going on and the like. The dancers are tethered to the wings. It's all rear projection photography, of course. But then it just gets absolutely ludicrous. More planes are continually added. The routines get more dramatic. At one point, there are trapeze artists swinging from the underside of a plane's wings, tossing a woman back and forth as it flies along. And then after one toss, they they miss her, and so she goes plummeting down to earth. There's this terrible scream only to be caught by someone riding on top of a plane that's flying below. So it's all ridiculous, but immensely entertaining. I'm pretty sure it's the only flight scene of its kind. So I I agree with B that this should be on my list. Now, is this the part where you tell everybody that your daughters were actually raised by Michael Phillips? (laughs) Yeah, it was part of the deal. (laughs) If you want to be on the show every other weekend. Take the kids. It seemed to work out okay. I am not familiar with this movie, but that scene is insane Isn't and it? a delight. Yeah. And we will link to it. You can watch the full scene on YouTube. But if you want a direct link, you can just go to filmspotting.net slash list. You can see all of our top fives, all of our picks. And whenever there is a scene available, we will link you to it. 
So for my number five, and it's probably good to go back a little bit. You brought up how you're sort of indifferent about air travel. You don't necessarily love it, but you also don't hate it. I kind of hate it. Okay. And there's some irony there. I mean, I'm the guy. You when do a lot more than me. That's true. But when there's any turbulence, I'm the guy who acts like the plane is crashing. <laughs> you know, if it slightly moves, I like almost grab the person next to me and I brace myself. It's really obnoxious. And the irony here, as you're going to hear, is that. The first vocation I ever wanted was to be a fighter pilot. Was this when you saw the right stuff? It was around there. And we're going to get to a couple movies on my list that really were huge influences. But I was sure I was going to be a fighter pilot, even though actually I have, I've never mentioned this on the show. I have this little eye issue that most people talking to me probably never notice, but it involves my left eye and how much it moves. And That would have never allowed me to be in the Air Force or Navy had I wanted to go down that path ultimately. But I was sure I was going to be into flying, maybe become a pilot myself someday. And then I remember getting in a plane for the first time. My dad actually became a pilot. He had his pilot's license, and we would fly little propeller planes. And I was so eager to go up that first time, and then I realized I was scared to death. (laughs) It wasn't fun. Dream over? Yeah, dream over. Just like that. (laughs) I was still into the movies, still into aviation as a general concept, but I knew it wasn't for me. But one of the films that was a huge influence on me, and that's where I'm going to start with my number five, a nostalgia choice, but a nostalgia choice that when I do revisit it, still delivers. It's The Final Countdown, a 1980 movie. I think it's only come up on the show before in the context of favorite nostalgia movies. And it's an alternate history movie, basically, a little bit of a sci-fi aspect to it. I'm not going to get into all the details. It stars Kirk Douglas. He's the captain of an aircraft carrier set in the present day. They're about to depart Pearl Harbor in 1980, and all of a sudden, a huge storm, like something they've never encountered before, comes upon them. And when the storm ends, they don't seem to be harmed. The boat's fine. They're fine. But they come to slowly realize that they're actually back in 1941. They have been taken through some kind of time portal, and it's actually the day before Pearl Harbor. So the alternate history aspect, of course, is then what do you do? You're an aircraft carrier. You have all the weapons in the world you would need to probably stop the Japanese fleet that's about to launch this secret attack and send the United States into World War II. Do you stop it or do you let history play out as you know it ultimately will? This came out in 80. I saw it on TV. TBS, I think, used to play it a lot. I think they still play it every now and again on TV. And I probably saw it then when I was between five to seven years old. My dad loved this movie. And there was one scene in particular, Josh, that always got us so excited. And if the final countdown came on, we made sure that we stayed and watched through this part. There's actually not a lot of flying in the movie because most of the action does take place on an aircraft carrier. But there is one scene, as I said, that always got us excited. And it's one where they've sent out some F-14s and they've come across some Japanese Zeros, some 1940s Japanese planes. And there's a yacht in the water and the Zeros are strafing it and they actually destroy the yacht. There are two people in the water who are still alive. The pilots want to engage the enemy here and they're told by kirk douglas to arm but not to fire just play with them so we then immediately cut to these two f-14s flying next to each other the score 
pumps in these trumpet blasts so triumphant and we get three to four minutes of just gorgeous aerial footage as these f-14s toy with the enemy propeller planes and something about that collision of technology and history it just always thrilled me and my dad how could these japanese pilots or the two americans who are in the water seeing these jets fly overhead how could they have any sense of that type of aircraft it's something they really couldn't fathom that speed and that power and then it is ultimately revealed that those planes are getting closer to the carrier and the captain tells them to splash the zeros but that part where they get to shoot them down really isn't what makes that scene so remarkable it's the toying with them and seeing the modern aircraft go up against the antiquated aircraft as i was thinking about this movie today and preparing my notes it occurred to me that it's ridiculous that I haven't watched this movie (laughs) with my son, any of my sons, but especially my son Holden, who, while he's not really into a lot of military movies the way I am, the same way I wasn't into a lot of military movies the way my dad was, this is a film with his love of history and his love of alternate histories in particular. And those alternate timelines and those kind of rabbit holes you can go down, this is a movie he'd love and... Now I realize that I have to go home and watch The Final Countdown. I think it's so crazy how you and I had such different movie childhoods, even though it was the same era. Yeah. I had no awareness of The Final Countdown when I, can see when I was a kid. And yet here, the never-ending story, which is where the, the giant dog beast, also known as Falcor, the luck dragon, Adam, yes. <laughs> that, that I was all on top of. Well, see, I that knew, flying scene, I could consider. I knew all about the never-ending story. We even had a VHS copy you wanted of it. no part of I it. I just didn't want to watch it. <laughs> Not for you. All right, my number four pick has a zero fighter plane. Tie-in It's related to Miyazaki. I mean, right away, I had to consider Miyazaki because flight is such an integral motif for his animated movies. As a matter of fact, I found a supercut of such scenes on YouTube that catalog just about all of them. So I could have gone with Porco Rosso about a World War I Italian fighter pilot who's been turned into a pig. Very good. Or I could have gone with one I know that you're partial to, Adam Nausicaa of The Valley of the Wind. But instead, I went with the scene from his supposed final film, which is a culmination not only of his career, but really his obsession with flight. And that's The Wind Rises, this biopic of aeronautical engineer Jiro Horikoshi, who did design the Zero fighter planes that were used by Japan in World War II. The Wind Rises opens with a dream that Jiro has as a boy in which he launches a small aircraft that he's made from his roof. And then he has this idyllic flight over the countryside that's as richly gorgeous as you can imagine, this being Miyazaki. But then these dark, throbbing shapes appear from the clouds above him that are tethered to this giant warship. They seem to be bombers, but they're also changing shape so that occasionally they look like these strange whales. They drop their payloads and destroy Jiro's craft so that he goes falling to the ground, waking up just before he hits. This was an early sign, I think, that even in what is ostensibly a biopic, Miyazaki is not going to set aside the fantastical or his eye for the natural world. So just in the same way those bombers look like sea creatures, Jiro's plane has these 
uh, feathery wingtips that emphasize its bird-like appearance. So the scene is both beautiful and unsettling. I also like how it sets up what will be one of the film's main themes. Uh, the Wind Rises ultimately, it laments the war, World War II, as this waste of Jiro's gifts or, or something, I guess you could say a corruption of his talents. And this flight dream that the movie opens with is uh, a nice premonition of that. Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. That's a wonderful pick. And you listed so many options there. That's when I knew I was in trouble with this list. I thought it was going to be relatively easy to make these choices. And then you saw on social media everybody picking all the different Miyazaki yeah, options. almost everyone. Somehow it managed to forget, despite seeing a reasonable number of his movies, all the ways flight is incorporated into so many of them. And maybe that will be its own list at some point. We have done our top five Miyazaki characters, yes. I think, but you really could justify a list of favorite Miyazaki flight scenes. I chose to kind of leave Miyazaki out completely, really, because it is so rich. And for my number four, I'm going to go with a scene involving Cary Grant. Now, listeners may think I'm going in one direction. There's a pretty obvious and deserved choice here. Like that one the listeners may be thinking of, this is one where Cary Grant isn't actually doing the flying. It comes about 15 minutes into the great Howard Hawks film, Only Angels Have Wings. There are a few different options that you could definitely pick from this movie. I'm going with Joe Fails in The Fog. And this is one where... We almost never actually see the pilot during the flight scene. One of the reasons it stands out to me, it's Cary Grant as Jeff. It takes place in this Southern American port town. I'm not going to get into all the plot details. It's a little bit too convoluted to set up who everyone is and why in the relationship to each other. All you need to know is Cary Grant and Gene Arthur. And then there are some of these supporting characters who are pilots. They fly a pretty treacherous route to deliver the mail and they work for Jeff's company. So again, this one happens 15 to 20 minutes into the movie pretty early, and it really sets the table for us in terms of understanding just how difficult this job can be and the level of professionalism, one of Hawk's favorite themes and ideas to explore just how important that is to doing the job, and not just doing the job, but surviving or keeping other people alive, if not just yourself. In this case, Joe has agreed to take this job, even though the bad weather is coming in. And we do see him at one point during the flight, Josh. But otherwise, the entire sequence is one where we are just watching Cary Grant as Jeff and the faces of the different characters, including Gene Arthur's Bonnie. He's hurrying back, Joe is, to see her. His mind is on her and not necessarily on the safety of the craft and everything that he needs to be focused on as this terrible fog is rolling in. So Jeff is already questioning his level of purpose here. And then that fog is so bad that he has to actually make three different attempts to land the plane. And this is the one I said where a crash is involved, but it's really about those three or four minutes and those different attempts and the way Hawks builds the suspense really neatly builds the suspense in those different passes and just cutting between the sound of the voice of Joe taking the instructions, Cary Grant's Jeff giving him the instructions, and then just the looks on their faces. We know everything that's going on. We feel like we even have a sense of where Joe is just based on the sound of his plane, the way they react to the sound. And again, that professionalism is really what the entire scene is about, where he's getting that instruction, but he maybe isn't paying attention 
quite as much as he should. And we see in Cary Grant's Jeff his ability to tell him just the right instructions just based on his experience and what he knows about this aircraft, what he knows about where they're trying to land and how to navigate it in fog. Look, Joe. Joe, you had the wrong line. You're way off. Okay, 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 Jeff. I saw the lights. I'll get it next time. Oh, nothing doing, Joe. Don't take any more chances. Now, you've got three hours gas. Three hours? Oh, Jeff, she'll almost be on the boat by then. Listen, I told you to stick to business. Now, get up on top and cruise around until it opens up down here. Right, Jeff. Don't let her do it. Oh, Jeff, give me one more chance. I think I see a hole. Now, Joe. Yeah, I do see one. Now, Joe, listen. I'm coming down, Jeff. Oh, Joe, please don't. Oh, Joe. Now, you got your orders. Stay up there and do as I tell you and quit worrying about that blonde. It's all right, Jeff. I see the lights. I'll make it easy. I'll make... There he is! Joe! Joe! Pull up! Pull up! When it does end in tragedy, we see how everyone is upset, but they also, as they know pilots have to do, they recognize that that's part of the job and... They pull themselves together. In fact, that's what Jeff tells Bonnie that she has to do. So I love it as a flight sequence where we hardly see any flying, and yet we feel like we're there with the pilot. And Only Angels Have Wings is a movie, I think, that always deserves a little bit more attention. Actually, Mike D'Angelo in the AV Club a couple of years ago wrote an article in honor of its Criterion Collection release arguing that it might just be the greatest classical Hollywood film ever. Not bad. Yeah. How about we get to that other Cary Grant option okay. that I think you were referring Set to. Set you up the nicely. crop duster attack in it's North by Northwest. Is that what you're going? Is that what you were thinking of? Hitchcock's not number one? Well, I, you know, it, it almost didn't make the list because in some ways it was so obvious, but it's just so good. And, and also I was hesitant because what else do you say about not only one of the best flight scenes of all time, but maybe one of the most studied and celebrated suspense sequences mm-hmm. of all time, courtesy of Hitchcock. Maybe I'll just focus on this. The creepy anonymity of the pilot. Now, in all of my other scenes, and maybe yours too, Adam, we at least see the pilots, and usually we have some sort of intimate connection with them. There's that attempt to put us in the cockpit with them. Not here. So as Cary Grant's bewildered Roger Thornhill ducks from his airborne attacker, we never get that cutaway shot that takes us close to the plane. And there's something scarier about that or more menacing. It keeps us trapped with Thornhill in his terror. And it also made me think of something that is maybe a little bit weird, but in movie scenes like this, suspense scenes, we want to know who's trying to kill us, right? There's maybe a small sort of comfort in the intimacy. Sure. And maybe this is why so many slasher flicks they wear masks to make them that makes them even scarier. It's more ominous. I guess it's just just a plane. Yeah, and that's the weird thing, too. It's almost like the plane itself is what's trying to kill you. There's no guy in there. There's no pilot in there, possibly. That is another thing that might be at play here. So, you know, the anonymous pilot, I think, is just one of the reasons this sequence is so brilliant. The sound is another, obviously. The way Hitchcock uses every inch of this yawning screen, that's so crucial. But I'll just leave it there for now so we can move on. It's a masterpiece sequence that, thankfully for me and this list, happens to involve a plane. Okay, my number three is another one that probably does not require much explanation or articulation of its greatness. It comes from a great film, one that we did talk about in a little bit of detail recently. What was the occasion, Josh, that we talked about the right stuff? And you finally watched the right stuff. I what prompted did. It? it was for a top five list. It was. And it made your Sam list, Shepherd, obviously. Something about Sam Shepard passing. 
I don't know. I don't remember. Let me l- let me do more research. I love it. And as I'll is, as is my one time this I'll episode. <laughs> While you Google, that is going to be the new norm here. But I'm going with the defeating the demon scene from The Right Stuff. It's actually from the beginning of the movie, basically, where we are introduced to Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager. Even though this is a movie about the Mercury 7 astronauts, the first men in space, so much of this great Philip Kaufman film is about like Howard Hawks would appreciate the profession of being a pilot. And Jaeger, among other reasons, in fact, he couldn't get into the Mercury 7 program. One of the reasons that the movie seems to suggest that he isn't a good fit necessarily for the program is that you're not necessarily a pilot. And we see the characters in the film, like Dennis Quaid's Gordon Cooper and Ed Harris's John Glenn, push back and say, no, you know what? We have to have some control. We're not just like the monkey you put up in space. We are pilots. Jaeger, the consummate pilot. And we learn that very quickly, and we certainly see it very quickly into the movie when we watch him break the sound barrier. That's the demon in the sky that... Some people were brave enough to test. It didn't work out for those people. But now here is Jaeger as a test pilot. He's in the Bell X-1. I think it's 1947. And no one's crossed that sound barrier before. No one knows what's even going to happen when you break the sound barrier. I think it's just over 750 miles per hour. And we see the way Kaufman cuts the scene, the shakiness of the plane, the X-1, that shaky image of Jaeger being tossed around as a pilot in close-up, the intensity of that. And it is so visceral. And then they'll cut back to the ground and we see the people who are invested in this. And some are people like his wife, played by Barbara Hershey. Some are his friends from the bar that he frequents out there in the desert. Some, of course, are military people. They all have a different interest in this, including another one of the pilots down there. And there's, of course, this competitiveness among them. And I love the way we will get a cut during the sequence to the pictures of the pilots on the wall of the bar and how quiet that is in contrast to the intensity of the scene. And I couldn't quite make out watching it again today there's a sense that one of those pictures on the wall might be Jaeger himself. And when you cut that into the sequence of him up there going up against the demon, it's almost like he's hanging in memoriam already. And you wonder if that is, in fact, going to be the outcome of this test. There's even a man in black and white wearing a suit. And again, it's been a long time since I've seen it, maybe watching it in context. We know exactly who he is, but he almost looks like an undertaker just ready for Jaeger to fail, to crash here and the moment he breaks it the way it's visualized like the entire fabric of time and space is torn open what's that sound oh god the people on the ground hear the boom they think it might be the noise signaling his death that somehow he's just exploded up there they don't know what could go on when you're trying to break the sound barrier it shakes the whole ground we cut back to that picture those photos that are hanging in the bar and see them shake. And then I just love the casualness of Sam Shepard's cool, the way he kind of says down to one of the crew members, you know, this this thing seems to be a little bit screwy on me. It's stuck up here past the one. So you really make another note here, would you? Must be something wrong with this old mock meter. Jump plumb off the scale. I'm kind of screwy on me. You go ahead and bust it. We'll fix it. Personally, I think you're seeing things. Shepard's just so good. The right stuff is so good. I thought about putting it in the penalty box before doing this top five, and then I just decided that nobody puts the right stuff 
in the penalty box. The right stuff can go in the Pantheon someday. It's not going in a penalty box. Chuck Yeager isn't going in the penalty box. So defeating the demon is my number three. So we discussed the top five films of 1983. There it is. On episode 666. My number one. Your number one. Okay, at my number two spot here for this list, I'm going with the running out of fuel sequence from Dunkirk. It's already gotten plenty of attention on the show. This was just last year that Dunkirk was my number one movie of 2017. And I think, Adam, it was on your top 10, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we both spent a lot of time talking about this sequence near the end of the film. It's where Tom Hardy's Spitfire runs out of fuel, but rather than return to England, he stays to provide cover to the soldiers on the beach. Eventually, his engine goes out completely, and then he makes that one final glide over the sand as he tries to manually land. So this is something of a cheat in that because of Christopher Nolan's extensive use of parallel cutting, uh, especially at this point, he's interweaving the movie's three main narratives. They're Mm -hmm. really all converging here. And so the Spitfire scene is broken up among these different sections. It's not one sustained scene. And online, I couldn't even find... The sequence in its entirety, I don't think. Most clips seem to have uh, been chopped up by the people who who posted them, and I don't have a copy of the film myself. What I do remember clearly, though, about seeing this movie is that this scene inexplicably caused me to well up when I watched Dunkirk, especially for the first time. It just offered this sublime sense of release and peace after all of the fear and the intensity that the movie had captured. And I think it's also true to the film in that it's not a moment of triumph. I mean, this is essentially a pilot having to abandon his plane, but it's a moment of failure that's that's honorably survived and endured, which mm-hmm. is very much a piece of the rest of the film. So Dunkirk, a little recent for a top five pick, but it's it's that good. So I've got it at number two. Yeah, it is that good. And another one that is that good and that obvious. This one really belongs in conjunction with your North by Northwest pick, Josh, but I had to include it, is Kong riding the bomb from Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> and speaking of movies in the Pantheon, I did have to do a last second look. Is this in the Pantheon? Yeah, I was just wondering Am that I myself. Am I going to have to do one of those mea culpas on air where I say, too bad I've already thought about my choice and blocked it in at number two, so it's staying even though it's in the Pantheon? It is not, but it certainly could be. If you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove, the Kubrick film, I'm not going to give you a lot of background here. I will say that this is a film I revisited recently with my son, Holden, the kid who's into history and into geopolitics and knows the movie and its reputation as a Cold War satire, had always wanted to watch it. And it was just maybe in the past six months or so that we watched it. Actually, Sophie watched it with us and we all loved it. And I think this is a movie like some other Kubrick where I remember watching it for the first time back in college, the little dorm room TV and appreciating it, admiring it, but not really loving it. And then you watch it again and you realize it's a great film. It's a great, great film. And not only that, I forgot how suspenseful it is. You think of it as this great black comedy, as this political satire, but it's really thrilling. When was the last time you saw Dr. Strangelove, Josh? Been quite a while. Everything about the realization ultimately that we're heading down a path of nuclear war, the end of the world, and then the attempts to thwart it Well, we've got Slim Pickens as the major on that bomber heading to carry out an order. Everything about them trying to stop it really is 
exciting and kind of harrowing. And I read somewhere today that he cast Slim Pickens in this cowboy major role because he obviously fit the part. And he told him that it was going to be a serious war drama. Kubrick basically lied to him and said, no, it's going to be a very serious war film. He wanted him to project himself just like a hero in a Hollywood sure, Western. Yeah. And ultimately, that's what we get with that character. I am picking, I've buried the lead here. I'm picking not only that last bombing run, but the moment when Kong, Major Kong, does finally successfully release the bomb and really has no choice. In this case, it seems like it's what he wants to do anyway. He rides the bomb like it's a Bronco, swaying his hat, yelling yeehaw as it goes to the ground. Major Kong. Names are a big part of this movie. We get that name Kong for a reason. We get the sexual suggestiveness of riding that bomb down to the ground the way that he does. Those are big parts of this movie for Kubrick. But it really is, I think, the most subversive aspect of the film that he's the hero that we've seen in so many Westerns, in so many war films. You're rooting for him in a way because of how determined he is to carry out the mission, how resourceful he is. And he's not just kind of this meathead warmongerer like some of the other characters in the movie. When he first gets the order, he considers that it has to be a mistake. There must be something wrong. But when he does verify that it's the actual order, he reminds those in his command that they have to remember one thing. The folks back home are counting on you, as he says it. And by golly, we ain't about to let him down. So in a way, we are rooting for him in a twisted way to be successful, while at the same time, of course, as viewers, we're hoping any last-minute intervention is going to take place to stop the end of the world from happening. But it's all the American spirit that we would typically want to champion, and most filmmakers, a lot of filmmakers, would champion, but we watch it here all in service of destroying humanity as we know it crazy scene i mean in some ways visually as kooky as my flying down to rio pick though obviously the reasons you explained a lot more going on in that scene okay so we're at our number one picks and i know adam when sam suggested this top five you and i had the same first thought we have not seen nearly enough fighter pilot movies from the 20s and 30s to do this so i was really glad that you were able to include only angels have wings that one was on my catch-up list the one that i was able to fit in before we had to record is the 1927 silent film wings now one reason i'd never seen this before is because i'd mostly heard it dismissed as the unworthy best picture winner especially compared to the other best picture winner from that year fw murnau's Sunrise. So Wings won for best production and then Sunrise won for best unique and artistic picture. Now, to be clear, Sunrise is better. I mean, it's a masterpiece. It's on my top 10 films of all time. But what a delight to find that Wings is a real achievement and a thrill to watch, especially the flight scenes here. The story itself involves two American rivals who end up as pilots in the same squadron in World War I. And the scene I'm picking is their first official patrol. So this is when they take to the skies for the first time before any dogfights even. The cameras are right there looking at the planes in profile as they rise off the ground. And there's this palpable sense 
of elation to it. The the DVD that I had offered the option of Gaylord Carter's organ score, and that certainly added to the experience. So if you're if you're going to watch this, I encourage you to to select the organ score. And then there's also this moment. It's a gorgeously composed profile shot closer in where the camera is right on Buddy Rogers in his open cockpit. And then behind him, three other biplanes in his squadron are they're staggered perfectly in the frame. Then this scene ends with a long shot of the four planes disappearing into some clouds. The intertitles in Wings throughout are really melodramatic. And following this segment, they say, on the high sea of heaven. But it's not hyperbole, given what we've just seen in this sequence. Now, much of this footage was taken in the sky. Cinematographer Harry Perry oversaw a team of about a dozen photographers. The director, I should say, is William Wellman. And I think the scope of this undertaking and the results they got, that's probably why it received an Oscar for Best Production. After I watched Wings, I found David Thompson's entry for the film in his book, Have You Seen?, And if I'd read this sooner, I probably would have watched Wings earlier. Thompson said, 80 years later, Wings is still a match for Sunrise. Again, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but it's pretty great. Well, Wings is a movie that I still need to catch up with. But watching that first scene, the aerial footage is incredible. I know. Can you get over it? It really holds up. And you can absolutely understand why that film in 1927 blew people away. So we'll go from the high seas of heaven your number one choice, Josh, to my number one, which just has scenes that take place in actual heaven. Powell and Pressburger's great film from 1946, A Matter of Life and Death, and the opening sequence to that movie, or part of the opening sequence to that movie, which I think is just one of the best openings ever. And is there a name for the opposite of meat cutes in cinema because this is a meat cute but it's really more of a meat tragic that we witness at the beginning of this film i certainly think it's one of the best flying scenes ever that showcases no actual flight i don't recall at least in the clips i watched today ever seeing the outside of the plane we never see any movement in the air it all takes place in this exchange between squadron leader peter carter played by david niven He's flying a bomber, trying to get back to England. It's badly damaged. The rest of his crew has parachuted out. He doesn't have one. He's going down with the plane. So all we see is Niven in close-up, and he's kind of giving his last will and testament, basically, to anyone who will listen. And who is listening is June, played by Kim Hunter, who's an American radio operator. Hello, G. George. Hello, G. George. Are you all right? Are you going to try to land... Do you want to fix? The name's not G. George, it's P. Peter. Peter D. Carter. D's for David. Squadron leader Peter Carter. No, I'm not going to land. Undercarriage is gone. Inner port's on fire. I'm bailing out presently. I'm bailing out. Take a telegram. Got your message. Received your message. We can hear you. Telegram to my mother. Mrs. Michael Carter, 88 Hampstead Lane, London, Northwest. 88 Hampstead Lane, London. Tell her that I love her. You'll have to write this for me, but what I want her to know is that I love her very much. That I've never shown it to her, not really, but that I've loved her always, right up to the end. Give my love to my two sisters, too. Don't forget them. As I said, it's really just a bunch of close-ups where we see their faces kind of in the same shot. Cutting between them as his plane is on fire, we get the sense of the fire around him and her face while she talks on the radio. 
And that's all we need in this sequence to completely suspend disbelief. Who knows where they shot it? Clearly, it had to be on a soundstage somewhere. And yet, just because of the sound, the production design that we do see, and the commitment to the characters and the script that we get, it's all enough to relay every bit of emotion and to put us right there with these two characters who are both going through such an intimate vulnerable moment there's a line in there where she's urging him to try to find a way out and he says let me do this in my own way i want to be alone with you he's never met this person he has no idea what she looks like who she is at all and yet in this moment because of the severity of the situation they've made this connection and he's saying this isn't something i want to share with anybody else anymore this is something i only want to share with you and if you aren't that familiar with Palin Pressburger. That's why we did a marathon on the Archers probably about seven or eight years ago here on the show. There's still many more films I need to see. This is a movie that I do think is purely entertaining, though it's dealing with these larger sort of spiritual questions, at least judging a life well lived. The alternate title for the film is Stairway to Heaven, but it's funny. It's romantic, like so many other Archer's films. It's about what it means to be an Englishman, what it means to be a man, what it means just to be a human being trying to connect with other human beings. Maybe my favorite part, other than this opening scene, is during a courtroom scene where David Niven is being questioned, and he is claiming that he loves her. He loves this woman and that he should be allowed to be with her. The prosecutor says, can you prove it? He says, give me time, sir. Fifty years will do. But can you prove it? And he says, well, can a starving man prove he's hungry except by eating? The question he gets back is, would you die for her? I would, but I'd rather live, which is really the movie in a nutshell. It's a masterpiece, and it didn't start out at number one on my list. But the more I watched it and the more I thought about it, I realized it was my favorite movie flight. As you describe that scene, I realize there is an homage or a straight-up ripoff of it in Captain America, the first Avenger, which I just happened to watch recently between Captain America and uh, Agent Carter in the climax of that film. Yeah. So they pretty much pretty much steal this. So those are our top five movie flights. We appreciate all the great feedback and all the great suggestions we got. There are a lot of movies we overlooked or we didn't overlook. We just had to relegate them to honorable mentions. Josh, do you have a few? Did we leave out Tom Cruise? He didn't get a slot. Yeah. And I, mean, I even the, talked about nostalgia films oh, that made me want to be a pilot. Top Gun was Top Gun right has there. two great ones. That opening sequence on the aircraft carrier yeah, that you mentioned. diplomatic relations or whatever. Well, just, yeah. just even, you know, with the credits when it's got that golden hue behind them. It's right. almost mythological. It's like Star see, Wars yeah. stuff there. And then, of course, there is that dogfight that comes with the ocean backdrop. Beautiful stuff. Mm -hmm. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, when yeah. he's hanging off the side. Agreed. And American Made, even. It's, it's grungier stuff there, I think, but still some pretty thrilling flight scenes. Uh, another filmmaker alongside Miyazaki, where flight has been so crucial, is Spielberg. The opening of Raiders, always. My mind first went to those sunset images from Empire of the Sun, but couldn't find a spot for him on my list. I did consider also a few more here. The Dark Knight Rises with its plane heist. And then going way back, King Kong fending off the plane attacks uh, at the top of the Empire State Building. That's a great one. We could have had two Kongs on our list. I had a few of the ones you mentioned in my honorable mentions, including a couple that made your list. The crop duster sequence from North By and also the Dunkirk plane landing. A few others, though, 
you could pick a lot of moments, of course, from the movie Airplane, which I do adore. You mentioned Rogue Nation, but how about Ethan Hunt and that helicopter chase in Mission Impossible Fallout? The two that were the hardest to leave off for me, other than Top Gun. I definitely wanted to pick something from Sully. I spared you, Josh. Thank you. I love me some <laughs> Sully. You can you can put that on the DVD cover. I love Sully, and there are so many great variations on that flight sequence that we could have picked. But in addition to that one, another movie that's come up a couple of times, I think I recently had it on my top five screen leaders, Gregory Peck, in the great 12 o'clock high. There's a sequence there where the guy who's been the boss of the squadron now has to actually lead them into battle and it's harrowing stuff again those are our top five movie flights we would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net over at the website filmspotting.net you can find 13 years of reviews interviews and top fives that's all in the show archives that's also where you can vote for our current film spotting poll. Which new take on a 70s horror classic are you most looking forward to? Is it Halloween or is it Suspiria? Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. That's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Out in wide release this weekend, a movie that just based on the title, I think a lot of us probably wrote off. And then I started to see pretty positive reviews about Bad Times at the El Royale. Seven strangers, each with a secret to bury, meet at Lake Tahoe's El Royale, a rundown hotel with a dark past. It's written and directed by Drew Goddard, who did Cabin in the Woods. Your boy, Josh, Chris Hemsworth, or I should say Debbie's. Yeah. Debbie's boy. She'll get so mad if I try to claim him. She's going to take you to this. She'll probably she's talk gonna me into it. She's going to make you go to Bad Times at the El Royale. Dakota Johnson also stars Jeff Bridges, John Hamm, and Nick Offerman. We have another Halloween movie though not of the Mike Myers variety, Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween. It stars Jack Black and Damien Chazelle's latest, starring Ryan Gosling, First Man. Out in limited release here in Chicago, The Hate You Give, about a teen girl who witnesses the fatal shooting of her childhood best friend at the hands of a police officer. Black 47, which is set in Ireland during the uprising that followed the country's great famine, and The Happy Prince, the Last Days in the Life of Oscar Wilde. It's written and directed by Rupert Everett. He also stars as Wilde. Colin Firth and Emily Watson co-star. Next week on the show, we're going to get a head start on Halloween ourselves. We're going to see how scary Halloween 18 is and how much Halloween 78 might just scare us. Or maybe it's Josh's initial take on Halloween 78 that's really terrifying <laughs> and He's going to apologize for it. Have you mentally prepared yourself for the possibility that I like Halloween 18 better than Halloween 78? <laughs> it's so going to happen. Just get, it's get, so get gonna ready happen. for the possibility. Put it down. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ. Org. If you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so that we can reach a couple of new listeners. Our music this week is from Phosphorescent. It comes from the new album, C'est La Vie. More information at phosphorescentmusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
discovered something disturbing walking the dog the other night. What's Later, that? end of the night. Our house looks fairly similar to the Myers house circa 1963. Really? Yeah, before it goes decrepit. The white siding. Yeah, I can see it. We've got the windows on each side and the posts even. Not quite the same size porch, but I come around the block with the dog <laughs> and we have, you know, it's it's lit up at this point. It's getting dark this time of year. And I stopped having just watched Halloween, I think like a couple days before and thought, oh, I don't know if I want to go back home. Hmm. It was kind of creepy. And now I'm going to think about that. You're the scary house on the street. I, I It always looked friendly to me before, but now if you've seen Halloween. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.